Okay. Hi, everybody. Good evening. Hello. Nice to see everyone. It's so cool to see that each night that we've done this, it's been a lot of different people each time, which is sort of the idea, uh, which is great. Um, so I'll tell you what I mentioned the first time that we did this and the second time that we did this when most of you weren't here. And that was that um, we know that individuals across the globe um, have been experiencing an explosion of mental health needs um, over the last number of years, even before COVID. I think COVID just you know, gave us a nice boost and all of that. And I think it's fair to say that anyone who's a parent of an emerging adult today, a young adult graduating high school, graduating college, starting a profession, is, you know, I think we all feel the world that they're entering and the world that they're growing up in is a very different world than the world in which we all did the same thing. Uh, the challenges that we face as young adults have been magnified and been exponentially for young adults today, and that makes our job as parents that much more challenging. And this is about one of the many reasons that I'm so proud that we launched the YIOT Mental Health Initiative in November, and continue it this evening. I continue to express our tremendous akarasatov to an anonymous YIOT family that has underwritten the entire program, that their vision, encouragement, and support we would not have been able to launch the program. I want to also thank Shani Barber, Judith Sucre, Lisa Heller, each of whom expert clinicians in their own right who agreed to take out their time from their very busy schedules to be on the Pichon Committee Framing Division for the general initiative and for this series in particular as we begin focusing on the emotional wellness of our children. And you're going to see as we move along in the coming months, we'll have more programming to come, Bez Hashem. And if we're going to come together and talk about the challenges that we face as parenting emerging adult children, so I can't think of a better pair of presenters than Dr. Michal Pelkovitz-Gala and Dr. Martin Gala. Uh, I'll, I'll say our brothers, brother-in-law and sister-in-law. Just to clarify. Just to clarify. <laughs> <laughs> they are each married to other people. Michal uh, Pelkovitz-Gala, PhD, is a licensed clinical psychologist and assistant professor of psychology and clinical psychiatry at Weill Cornell Medicine and a psychology chief of the Payne Whitney Child and Adolescent Psychiatry Clinic at New York Presbyterian. She's an, she has an expertise in evidence-based therapy for children, teens, and young adults suffering from anxiety and related disorders. She also researches ways to optimize therapy for youth using virtual reality. In addition to her work at Cornell, Dr. Pakowitz-Gala is a mental health consultant for NCSY summer programs and provides training and support to staff and leadership in navigating mental health challenges in youth. Martin Gallo, PhD, is the Clinical Director of Adult Services at Chief Behavioral Health in Muncie, New York. Prior to Achieve, Martin served as the Associate Director of the Achieve University Counseling Center for seven years, where I had the pleasure of working with Martin uh, for that, almost that entire time. Um, at Achieve, Martin is responsible for the day-to-day -day clinical operations for the adult services, which includes overseeing directors of several departments and clinical <coughs> tracks and supervising supervisors of other clinicians. Martin also maintains a private practice here in Teaneck, he received his BA from Yeshiva University, where he majored in psychology, he received a master's in social work from Cleveland University, and PhD from Wurzweiler School of Social Work. Martin's clinical interests include working with adolescents, young adults, and adults struggling with a variety of presentations, including perfectionism, anxiety, depression, relationship issues, and other mental health-related disorders. Um, I can just say personally that uh, both Dr. Scala uh, just have a tremendous amount of expertise and personal warmth. And uh, we're just very, very uh, privileged and honored to have him with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Um, yeah, the advertising is very misleading. We are not married. Um, but 
my in-laws and Martin's parents are as proud as if we were real siblings, which is very sweet, <laughs> and they wish they could be here. So, oh, and hi, they're listening probably when we record. Um, so yeah, we're going to talk about parenting emerging adults. It's a topic that I think rarely gets thought of because we talk about hitting 18 and all of a sudden, you know, a kid is no longer a kid, and that's just very much not true, um, as I'm sure you're all aware. So um, as just a very quick overview, a, a preview of what we'll be talking about, um, I'm first going to talk about what emerging adulthood is as a developmental stage. Like I said, we don't think about it in terms of a, a stop on the developmental um, sort of trajectory of a kid, but it very much is, uh, you know, much like, uh, you know, early childhood and teenagehood and everything. So we're going to talk about that. We'll talk about developmental milestones. Um, and how we sort of think about somebody progressing appropriately through this developmental stage. Um, we'll talk about psychiatric risk, because uh, this is actually a uniquely vulnerable time, so we want to be paying attention to what to look out for. Um, a little bit about neurodevelopment. I'm not going to talk too much about the brain. I hope not to be boring, but I think it is, it is interesting to just see what's going on neurodevelopmentally. Um, we'll talk about the role of parents, which um, obviously is relevant here, um, and then we'll talk a lot, and I hope we're gonna focus most of our time on practical tips, because I assume that's also why most people are here, and then we'll try to give lots of time for, for Q&A. Please stop us at any point if you have questions. I think we'd much prefer for this to be um, kind of a, a dialogue than for us to just stand here, you know, kind of boring talking through slides. Um, can everyone hear me? So the concept of emerging adulthood, like I said, is relatively new, um, and it, it actually, the stage itself didn't even exist. In the 1950s, people went to high school and then they got married. Um, and depending on when this was, you know, uh, at what point in, um, in history this was happening, they sometimes would go to the army, they would go off to war, they would come back. But for the most part, people were, um, you know, graduating high school and then moving from their parents' home directly into a home that they were making with a partner or a spouse. Um, and now, in the starting around the 2000s, um, there's these two sort of more spread out phases within development where we have, you know, somebody graduating high school and then there's this sort of ambiguous phase of emerging adulthood, then kind of establishing a career. Um, kind of firmly identifying a career identity and then marriage and that's sort of borne out in the data what is happening in terms of the age of marriage it's really shifting. Um, Jeffrey Jensen Arnett is a developmental psychologist who is known for identifying for the first time the this developmental stage he coined the term emerging adulthood a lot of the data that we'll talk about today comes from him um, and he really kind of talks about how to characterize this phase and how we think about this age. Um, we really just kind of shift the age of transition into full adulthood, which is a, another developmental stage that is not super well defined, but we um, sort of want to think about what is happening just before somebody kind of transitions into full adulthood. And I just wanted to note, because a lot of people ask, what are we talking about when we say emerging adults? Most of the research is talking about either 18 to 25 year olds, and most research now goes all the way up to age 30, considering age like 28 to 30, as uh, still not fully in full adulthood, which in itself is, is interesting, and a lot, um, I see a lot of faces <laughs> in reaction to that. Um, okay, yeah, so we thought we would start by getting 
doing a little quick little poll. We have the answers, but we wanted we wanted to see what you what you all thought, uh, just to get a little sense of what you think you know young adults, emerging adults are going through. So, what percentage of emerging adults, 18 through 29, had their daily contact with their parents? <coughs> Show of hands, five percent. Okay, good. Fifteen percent. Okay, fifty-two percent. And 89%? Okay, so most of us fall in the B and C category. All right, let's see. Well done, 52%. I think that's what most of us said. Okay, great. Um, what percentage of emerging adults often feel anxious? 11%? Anybody for 11%? Okay, now we're getting a little... You know what, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you actually a little hint, which is uh, the, the national average for all lifespan anxiety is in the like 20 to 30% range for clinical anxiety disorders. It's rising tremendously, which is, you know, wh why we're in a mental health crisis, but that's kind of your benchmark. Okay, so 11% after that little introduction? Mm -hmm. No, okay. 27%? No one. Okay. 40%? And 58%. Ah. Like catching ideas, on. I guess <laughs> catching on. All right. Let's keep it going. All right. What percentage of college students report moderate psychological distress? 7%. Zero people. 22%. Okay. Courageous person in the back. 52%. <laughs> Oh, sorry, I, I gave you that. <laughs> and 79%. My fingers slipped, I'm so sorry. Okay, what percentage of college students report feeling lonely? 35%? Nobody? I don't know the answer to this one. 54%? Okay. 70%? And 80, 88%. 54%, okay. So half, half college students feel lonely. Um, Okay, well, this is one of my favorites. What percentage of emerging adults think anything is possible? 9%. We'll find out. 24%. 60%. Okay, good. And 82%. 82%. Bang. Yeah. Okay, so that's very interesting, right? Because the way I saw this, I mean, obviously it's a big study with a lot of people in it. But we see that a lot of people feel lonely, feel anxious, and feel very, very optimistic at the same time. That's kind of the deal that we want to present here. There's a lot of different pieces going on, and there's a lot of different feelings happening at the same time. Even though it sounds contradictory, this is, this is where these people are right now. So I often teach this class, actually, to um, psychiatry residents. Uh, just to learn about the developmental stage. And I start, not this way, I actually start with just a little um, kind of like word association <coughs> regarding emerging adulthood, the word, the phrase emerging adulthood. They're all emerging adults. And it's fascinating, the kind of, this dichotomy, this like, they're distressed, they're overwhelmed, this is a time of major transition in very scary and also simultaneously very hopeful ways. And that's, I think, probably the main thesis of what we're gonna talk about today. Um, so, like I said, developmental milestones, we neglect them when we're talking about 
anything really beyond age 18, I mean, honestly, do we really think very carefully about developmental milestones of anyone over the age of, I don't know, five? <laughs> um, we're really focused on them. I, myself, am an early parent. My daughter's only one, and I'm very focused on what day she's learning how to do what thing. Um, and, and then I know that I think, because I hear that all the time. Yes. <laughs> Remember, brother. Getting <laughs> Um, and yeah, we, we are very focused on what's happening to our kids up until a certain point, and then we sort of stop talking about it, um, and we stop paying attention, and because of that, we also lose track of the markers of a successful kind of course of development, and that means that we have kids that fall behind, and also that maybe we're holding people to a higher standard than could necessarily be, be appropriate. So we really need to be thinking about finding the balance between where should they be, like are they, are, are they not where they should be, and am I expecting too much? So what are some milestones? Let's just actually have a little conversation about this. What are some milestones that you would expect someone to have reached by the age of 30? The first full -time job. job. First job, full-time job. Same time. No parental credit card. <laughs> okay, uh, financial independence, no parent credit card. Mm -hmm. Living independently. What was that? Living independently. Independent living, and we'll talk about what that means. Being married, having children. Like we're missing like a big one. No, that was actually a lot. That was great. This is a therapist trick. You're very quiet. We're good at sitting in silence. We're all day. Knowing how to deal with life's travails or its problems. Absolutely, being able to handle bumps in the road. I think on top of adding a job, no one they want to do with the job because a lot of times they have like temp jobs. That's not really. What they want to be and yeah, so we're talking about a job for financial security versus a career, so some kind of idea of a career trajectory, or yeah, what they want to do with their lives. How about I don't know how to say this, but being able and willing to change their mind, or being able to convince somebody else to change theirs? Like uh, kind of a debate. Yeah. Follow. Oh, flexible thinking, flexible like being thinking. able to think yeah. flexibly, not hold your beliefs too too strongly, and be able to convince other people of yeah. of yeah. I assume we're talking about like like political affiliations and things like that. Political, religious, anything, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Having a strong social circle, mm -hmm. friends and colleagues. Yeah. So we mentioned romantic relationships. You're talking also about friendships. Yeah. Self-reliant. Okay, so just like general being able to kind of function independently on their own. Anyone else? These are great. Very good. Yeah. It's the whole list. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so the, um, Jeffrey Denton Arnett is, is sort of the one that coined, and I, I will point out that I I did my postdoc with um, what what was then called the Youth Anxiety Center is now called the Center for Youth Mental Health. It's a tri-institutional organization within New York Presbyterian, Cornell, and Columbia that really focuses on this developmental stage and identifying what it means and also the ways that anxiety and other mental health struggles can impede the progression. So I am very um, sort of oriented towards thinking about the, the problems associated with this stage and I 
love talking to people who are not thinking about this from a clinical perspective of how we can, um, you know, sort of get kids who are succeeding through um, even, even more successfully. Um, and so these four broad areas, I think, were basically covered, what you all kind of mentioned, the um, area of independence, identity formation, accepting responsibility, and socialization. And we're going to go into a little bit more detail. This is visible, right? Um, so what, this, what these all represent are um, developmental tasks. So much like we are, are thinking about when kids string together a sentence, um, as a developmental, as a behavioral indicator of achieving a certain, you know, developmental task of learning how to speak, we're talking here about the tasks of emerging adulthood, and we can kind of go into detail about all of the different behavioral indicators, so the the signs that someone actually is achieving this. So we can go into, like I said, a little bit more detail here, but I also want everyone, as I'm going through these, to think about where they themselves fall if we think about this as a spectrum. Um, so if you wanted to think of this in terms of each one of these tasks can be achieved at 100% or 0%, I assume that not everyone is getting an A plus on every single one of these, these tasks. And I really think it's important for us to remember this because again, we need to find this balance when we're thinking about what standards we're holding our kids to and also you know, are we pushing too hard? Or are we not pushing hard enough? So establishing emotional independence is one, being able to kind of function, like somebody brought up, being able to function when something, when there's a hiccup, um, being able to handle it without having to immediately call your parents and not be able to cope on your own, developing self-identity, so knowing who you are, and this is sort of vague, um, but who you are, how you, you know, kind of think of yourself in the world. Um, behavioral independence, and that's a little bit more kind of concrete. So this is, um, I think, under this umbrella can be, you know, financial, can be living in an apartment, can be all of those things. But sort of behaviorally being able to live your life without a parent having to be breathing over your shoulder, completing educational requirements, living independently, and that's a little bit more again talking about, you know, having your own home. Um, being able to, you know, keep your home clean and, you know, safe and all of that. Um, financial independence, which is very closely related to the next one, which is managing money responsibly. Um, I think that somebody can be not financially independent and still manage money responsibly and vice versa. Um, making and keeping long-term friendships, control, controlling personal self-care, um, controlling medical health care, uh, romantic relationships and vocational goals. Is there anything here that's surprising to anyone? Or that you don't agree with? Only the age at which you should have achieved this. Mm -hmm. 30 is, sounds excessive. <laughs> I mean, I'm just comparing, I, mean, I don't know to what extent this is generational, but I'm just thinking about my grandfather, this one of my father working when he was 12. Yes. Right. <laughs> to what extent is this engineered for, you know, um, affluent Jewish kids in Kenya? <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. Don't worry about the fact that you still haven't achieved any of <laughs> <laughs> I just told my wife that 
something, and by age 30, I was, I was yoinks at all of these. <laughs> and, and also, we have to decide what we mean by being yote. Like, are we talking 100%? Are we talking 75%? Are we talking 50%? And, and can we tolerate, you know, somebody who really needs to call their parent every single time they're disappointed, but who is otherwise, you know, killing it on all the other domains, is that, is that tolerable? But you're, you're absolutely right that there's a huge generational piece here. Um, we used to talk about this in terms of millennials. Now we talk about it in terms of Gen Z, but it's always, this is gonna compound itself. This exact problem is gonna compound itself. And if we go backwards, yeah, our, you know, that generation you're, that you were just referring to, they absolutely are, would laugh if they saw this um, or throw up. Um. <laughs> I, would also, I would also say one more thing. I think that your point is actually the point, meaning I, I think these, these young adults, these emerging adults are aware of that. They know that, right? So they, it's not like they're floating around and they don't understand all of this needs to happen by, like you're saying, we're in Teaneck, we're, we gotta get things moving. So they know that like pretty early on and because they know that, that's like, that, that's where things start really getting intense. Because, because they say, I have to get married, I have to find a job, I can't just find any job, I have to find a great job. I have to make a lot of money, I have to live in a certain community. It's not to say all these, we know they're true, we know we have to function within a Jewish community, I, I have to pay, I'm gonna have kids later, and then I'm gonna have to pay for their school. And then I'm gonna have to pay for their like. These are all the conversations I used to hear all the time. Uh, at, at, I mean, that was at YU, but I think that's a good representative of, of you know where people are. And I think that's kind of the point that we're making is not that like I hit this benchmark, I get a check. I hit that benchmark, I get a check. It's more of like let's keep in mind that they're thinking about all of this all the time. And so when we talk to them and we try to relate to them, we got to remember that all of this is going on plus whatever is not here. You know, whatever, whatever is unique to the Jewish community. That's kind of, I think, our overall message, is that we know, they know, everyone, everyone knows, and so that we have to keep this all in mind when we're trying to talk to them. Does that, that make sense? Yeah. But what part okay. of this is normal versus the pressures that the modern Orthodox communities have created upon ourselves, our children? Yes and yes. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the opposite. I feel like we coddle our children more than world and don't like like establish emotional independence i don't know i, I don't know too many pictures who are emotionally independent yeah i was with seth like how much are we the problem like if we're the, like probably we, i bet all of us talk about this all the time yeah so aren't we the problem then? i mean this, this is kind of what I, this is kind of what we're saying i don't know if we i don't know i don't like looking at it as uh maybe that's just being too optimistic as like problem versus not problem i i think that no, no one is trying to create. No one is trying to create difficulties for their children and make life worse for them. We have pressures. They have pressures. We want to just. We want to create a situation where everyone is kind of talking to each other, communicating, supporting each other, and we can talk about how to do that in a, as practical way as possible. But, but that's the idea. It's not like I'm creating a problem for my kid or my kid's creating a problem. We're all coming from different points and all of them are important and we're all trying to do the best we can not just best we can we're trying to be productive we're trying to we're trying to you know live our lives but within that without the that's what we wanted to bring tonight without the understanding of where they're coming from it's going to be hard to
communicate with them. That's kind of the idea. A night like tonight is about information. It's about like understanding. It's not necessarily solving problems. It's about understanding maybe where they're coming from. And then, oh, now I understand where you're coming from. Now I can relate to you in a, in a different way. Yeah, and I think that along those same lines, we're talking about trying to approach this as a team rather than an adversarial way, where it's like my generation versus your generation, parent versus child, my expectations versus your abilities or your expectations. There is, we, we are encountering a problem together in some ways, this, whether it is something that is causing a barrier to achieving a developmental milestone or it is you know just kind of the natural like growing pains of progressing through life I, I think that the more we can give you information that helps you feel like your child's teammate within reason obviously I'm not talking about you know um, again always finding a balance um, but the more you can think about it that way rather than a um, adversarial or kind of on opposite sides of the table the better but I feel like, and I work with a lot of people like this age, and I feel like we've kept in our community broader, not just teenagers, broader, but our community is sort of milestone in the early 20s of getting married, sort of 1950 when we've kind of more or less you know, mm -hmm. kept that, as opposed to people who I work with who are going through this, and they're doing a pretty good job, they've definitely delayed that, you know, sometimes cohabitation is not as bad. Does that make a difference in the process, or is it, or is it, does it make a difference in the process? I mean, you tell me, but I, I, I think that that's sort of what we're talking about here, is the way that um, we, we do have some added pressures in, in our community that cause more pain in the process of growing up, or, you know, there, there's a reason that we, that we work this way and that we have these expectations. I think it is beneficial in a lot of ways that has enhanced our community, uh, and um, I think that it's been a wonderful thing, and also, I, I do think that that's, I mean, we can put that as a sort of separate developmental yeah, yeah. milestone as, yeah. You mentioned this goes up to 30, but it, have we, like when this started, was, was the age like 24, and this has kept crept up like over time, and do we see this continuing to creep up, or is that something that, like, are we going to start thinking about, like, you know, 35-year-olds being still not emotionally... Well, so I, that's a really good point, and it's why I wanted to talk about the psychiatric risk and the, the neurodevelopmental perspective here, because um, basically the point of this busy slide that you don't have to read in detail is um, all psychiatric disorders, the median age that they tend to emerge, will they all kind of converge at this age. So if someone is going to develop a psychiatric illness, they will probably be doing it within five to 10 years of, of, what, of this age. So there is this kind of, um, kind of natural, like, um, you know, it's kind of a scary time, and it's because of the neurodevelopmental kind of risk of this time. It is still a very delicate time in our brains. Um, and the reason that I'm bringing this up to answer your question is, the, uh, the CEO of the brain, the, the kind of frontal lobe, we, we're not, again, gonna go into too much detail, but it doesn't finish developing until age 25. The number 18 comes from nowhere. It does, it's completely meaningless. It's a, I mean, if anything, it's political slash legal. It is not at all mapped onto the, what we know about brain development, but age 25 is. We now know that the brain 
is really not fully developed until age 25. So theoretically, the answer to your question should be no. How did it get up to 30? Like why, where did it go, how did it get beyond 30? And I think we're talking about the difference between the um, neurodevelopmental facts and the kind of social factors. Um, I would hope that we're not gonna continue to have this, this age creep up until we have four-year-olds who are saying, I, you know, I, I'm not ready to, to decide what my career is, or um, you know, I'm, I'm just too young to get married, or, or whatever it is. Um, but there is a, a, an explanation in neurodevelopment for why the late 20s still feels a little young, and it's because things just kind of gelled. Um, and just so you kind of understand what I'm talking about here, we think of the forebrain or the prefrontal cortex as the, um, as the CEO of the brain is kind of in charge of everything that makes you a mature and sophisticated human. Um, so all of this long list of things, working memory, organization, um, self-control, prioritization, um, goal-directed behavior, planning, all of these things that, that you kind of think of as being grown up, some of your kids' brains actually can't quite do this yet. And then complicating factors fully, the prefrontal cortex is the rational part of your brain, and then the nucleus accumbens is the pleasure-seeking part of your brain, and the nucleus accumbens is like fully cooked by this point. And so we have fully developed pleasure-seeking combined with underdeveloped decision-making. Which is this, my favorite. Which is, is explosive. I have a colleague who I often um, kind of give this talk with who says, um, the car rental companies have it right. Because yeah. it would be dumb to put a car that you own in the hands of someone who has this going on in their brains, right? And we all, you all do it. I'm sure your kids are driving your cars, but but they're also crashing your cars. And sometimes, and sometimes you you find yourself saying, "What were you thinking?" And the answer is, they weren't. Like they actually weren't. The prefrontal cortex is responsible for helping them to make wise decisions, and they're not fully there yet. Um, and I think that this is really helpful in thinking about what's going on in your up to 25 year olds, maybe 26, 27 year olds, and then at a certain point it does start to break down, and there is kind of this social factor that is a little confusing. But then why is this community like not only okay, but like kind of advocates for 21 year olds to get married and have babies? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, <laughs> you don't want to give a you don't want to give the twenty one year old a car to yeah. drive for an hour, but you want to give them a baby to bring up. Because to get married, that decision you can only do when your frontal lobe is not. <laughs> I don't yeah. <laughs> But do you actually find that, like, when that happens, it can um, accelerate some of the accomplishments or not accomplishments, but goals that you had on the initial screen? Meaning, mm -hmm. you push. Not they might still make not the best decisions in the world, but the idea that they have to now start having that responsibility can help the brain develop more. I guess uh, in in a in a more advanced way or something like that because they're forced into those situations. Yeah. I would just say, like, when we talk about data in general, 
Like it's it's dated. It's general. So right. it's, it's not meant to say this applies to every single situation. situation. Yeah. Even these numbers, even development, all these, even what we said before by J.J. Arnett, the 18 to 30, this is not like the Bible. It's not like, right. it, it's meant as like guidelines. Like this, we, we, we get from data, we get general information that we then can apply and figure out what we're going to use it for. So to, to your point, some 21-year-olds could get married. Absolutely, should, could. It's better for them to get married at 21. Some 28-year-olds should not get married. It, 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 or 30-year-olds. It, it's, it's not meant to be, let's use this as a proof for this or, or against that. It's meant to just give us a picture. Like, what can we glean generally from this? And then apply it to your 21-year-old or your 28-year-old. Does or doesn't apply. So that, I, think, I think that's the idea. Because you, kind of you guys are kind of like bouncing off each other. And I, th I think that's the point. So we look at all this stuff. It's not meant to be exact. It's meant to give us like a real big wide picture and then we can apply it. So I think I'm a baby boomer. I'm proud of it. But um, one of the things I see, big drastic change in society from when I went to college. I went to see University of Queens College. I basically got the first instituted tuition the first year I started. I basically didn't pay a dime for college. Got through college. I had it very, I wouldn't say easy, but smooth ride, decide what I want to do for a living. I knew I wanted to be an accountant. Didn't have to worry about finances. I was home for several years. Didn't think about it. Shift a bunch of years later today. Tremendous, tremendous pressure on these kids. A ridiculous amount of money to go through college. The political pressures, the anti-Semitic pressures, trying to figure out how they're going to make a living. And I know a lot of the kids in this age group are worried. And I know Rabbi Crone mentioned that certain kids may want to be a teacher or, or other profession that may not make as much. No, parents say, can't do that. You'll never survive. So I think that's a tremendous, tremendous disadvantage to today's emerging adults. And how do you solve that problem? Yeah. Do you have the answer to that? <laughs> <laughs> later, later. Bonus. Bonus. Later. Let me think about it. <laughs> but I think that, that that's part of what we're talking about here is the reality that there is this, you know, like the, there are these data points that we have and they're gathered, I think, <coughs> at, at various points. Jeffrey Dunson Arnett's research has been going on for 25 years um, and he's getting very different pictures from year to, from, you know, study to study because these generational effects that have everything to do with this, the social pressures and the ways that the world is changing. It's not just those millennials are so lazy, like, oh, what's going what's gonna to happen with Gen Z? It is this, this reality that the world is getting much more expensive. Expectations within the firm community have completely changed in terms of um, being able to keep up financially. Um, all of these things are the reality. <coughs> and, and I think that part of what we're hoping to do here is just to give you a little bit of context to think about and, and maybe empathize with the, the reality of what some of your kids are, are kind of coming to the table with. Um, and then, yes, and also maybe feel a little um, frustrated and hopeless and, and um, all of those other very human reactions to what your kids do. What does the research say is the reason for this new developmental stage that previously wasn't focused on? Um, I mean, it is. It, it's, a, it's not a, like a, a 
developmental thing in terms of the change in brain development or a change in the way that the body is developing. When an adult would achieve those objectives that you had up there. Mm -hmm. So for, it used to be say 18, then it came 20, then it came 22, and now the expectation for an emerging adult, which previously was a study that put in the developmental sequence, mm -hmm. it's come out, and obviously the researching and speaking about it. What is the data say is the reason for that? That we've shifted when those goals should be achieved. I think that's exactly what we're talking about here, is these social changes. They are very generational in nature, and that is to do with what's going on in the world. Um, you know, the first stage that we were talking about, or the first, uh, you know, the 1950s, people who are graduating high school in the 1950s, these are, you know, people who's, you know, are just in the aftermath of World War II. That's a very different world than, you know, what a 22-year-old is doing right now. And I think that that, and, and, you know, what's going on now in our community is a completely different context than what, let's say, even, you know, I experienced when I was just graduating or was in college. So I think a lot of these kind of societal and social factors are, are impacting it. I think he, I think he saw, like, like, like we're saying, Dr. Arnett and the others that research it saw that there was something changed, meaning it came from, it came from the end and he went back to the beginning. He saw that people were struggling much later on in life. So he saw, again, speaking of the general public, 25-year-olds that had no idea what they were doing for a living, single, you know, feeling lost, lonely, and he said, this doesn't make any sense. Why are you not able to figure it out? So then he went back and he started asking them questions. What is going on? And then his, his research is very interesting. It's very qualitative. He hears a lot about details about what people are struggling with, why they're struggling, when they're struggling. He, he does interviews, a lot of the research that he looks at. So it, it gives a much fuller picture. And he was, able to see, he was able to make these categories and see that these points now were just happening much later on in life. So that, that, that's what, when we're trying to figure out the why, that, that's a little bit harder to figure out. That's all the pieces we're talking about, the societal pressure, family pressure, internal pressure, all these different pieces that are now happening. Probably also social media doesn't help to, to be able to see everything that everyone else is doing and to be involved in everyone else's life. Everyone's very involved with everybody else. So this probably adds more pressure, and the more pressure a person feels, the more stuck they can get. Um, so that actually, thank you for asking that because that is in considered to be one of the behavioral tasks associated with. I'm just reminding myself because I can't remember which one it is, which does, is not doesn't bode well. Um, it can't be. It's like a Jeopardy board. <laughs> no, 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 it's in my notes here. <laughs> um, it's in one of these. Um, self identity. No. Right now, but it is part of it. But it, it is identified as one of, like I said before, if your child is learning how to walk, they first have to learn how to crawl. That's considered a, you know, behavioral task on the way to the developmental goal of walking. The ability to kind of um, give back to, to, you know, society, make decisions about what, you know, religion you believe in, what, um, yeah, it is part. That definitely is part of self identity, but also, you know. Um, being deciding to or not to be involved with charitable organizations, deciding to or not to, you know, give back to to your community, that kind of thing, is on here somewhere, and I just can't remember where. <laughs> Sorry. What's that? Um, I'm gonna get a little personal here. I have a son in Israel for a year, and I noticed there's a nice difference between the various kids and the kids. Over 100 
students kind of are in school. Some are very entrepreneurial. We even make stuff, we sell it to my son and others. And some of them just live right off of their, their parents' money. personal opinion is I think there has to be a little especially when it comes to being an entrepreneur a little bit of interest on your own like different kids are different people are interested in different things so some some are more out there want to make things happen right away others are not this is not a good or a bad thing it's just different ways and different personalities so I imagine if we're talking about your situation you probably have tried to talk about this with your son some way I assume. I assume. <laughs> we'll get the communication. Very soon. Uh, no, but 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 I I think I think that the, I think that if you bring it up, and you know, like like that that's kind of my theory is that um, young adults, kids, everybody, they're aware of what's going on around. It's like they don't know that this person is out there, you know, selling his goods, making money, doing great, seemingly doing great. If they're not able to do it, there's something that's holding them back that either they that they may or may not be aware of. But I think pushing and trying to get it to happen, I, I don't know if that's the best way to do it. You can have a conversation, you can talk about this person, and you can ask them, like, have you ever thought about you know what so and so does and what so and so is doing? And if and if he shuts you down, that's kind of you know we're gonna get to that a little bit later. Like that's kind of where we have to let things go, at least for the time being. The more you push, generally speaking, on a, especially on a sensitive topic like that, like you know, making money or being successful, the, the more the if, if there's a sensitivity there, the diff, more difficult it's going to be to make it into a conversation. So it's hard without getting into like all the details of your specific situation, but I think it's tricky if you've tried and you've brought it up and there's really been like pushback or nothing. I, I don't know if it's worth going down that road now. You always have time to come back to these conversations later. People change over years. <coughs> but if you've tried, then I would say... You're right, but I wouldn't push... Right. And I, I do think that the point relates, I guess, to the next, the, the last the, the non-practical tip section that we wanted to talk about. And we're sorry to bring up the New York Times. When I made this slide, it wasn't quite as obnoxious to bring up the New York Times. But <laughs> the, I think that this... this um, this poll is very interesting and illegible. I apologize. So, um, can you read it at least? I can read it out loud, yes. Just this is another one of these fun polls. Um, parents of adults 18 to 28 who said they reminded their adult children of deadlines they need to meet, including for schoolwork, 76%. So, 76% of parents, three quarters of parents. This is for at least college age students. All right. And this is the whole the whole population, fifteen hundred people. That could also be like a shepherd parent who just reminds their kids. <laughs> you know, yeah. Seventy five. I'm just saying, a lot of shepherds. Parents could be, yeah, you know, 
Annoying too. That's true. Yeah, but they shouldn't even, like, parents shouldn't even know once your kid is in college what their deadlines are for a, a book report or a presentation or a test. Like, that's on the kid. Like, they shouldn't, that's just a bit too much. And there we go. Perfect. That's good. Exactly. 74% uh, made appointments for them. The doctor's appointments. 22% um, helped them study for a test. So, right, one out of every four parents. This one is my favorite one. Even though the number is low, it's yeah. shocking to me that this number even exists, which is 11% would contact a child's employer if he or she had an issue. Okay, but well, wait a second, wait a second. So, we had a whole thing about this. And uh, I, look, it's 11%. I don't think no one in this room would do that. I don't, I don't really believe that. I don't know. There's got to be... How many people are in this room right now? That's one of those things people, that Four is, people. That's one of those things where is, is it the parent or is it the child? Like, And I think that that's the point also, is that a lot... And we'll talk about this in the next slide. A lot of this is, is a completely understandable effort at a parent to manage their own anxiety um, because it's very natural and I'll, maybe I'll, I'll just skip to, to this slide it's very natural to want to ease the way for your child because watching your child in discomfort is like literally evolutionarily painful for you um, I've all heard of helicopter parenting this is the age of what we call snowplow parenting, which is completely leveling the road in front of your child so that they don't have to experience a single bump in the road. They do not have to experience an ounce of pain ever. And a lot of you are shaking your heads because that ultimately is not helpful. From a, Again, to, to put my anxiety hat back on, from an anxiety perspective, it reinforces anxiety over time. A child who never learns to experience any kind of discomfort is going to slip and fall in a major way at some point in the future. Um, but a lot of this is coming from the most loving place. Not a lot of it, 100% of it is coming from a loving place, which is fear that your child is not going to have the life that you want them to have. And watching your child in pain is, is you know, pain times a thousand. It's, it's so hard to do. And yet doing it is actually ultimately causing a problem. And then there's this concept that I think is, is, uh, uh, is very related to what we're talking about here, which is the concept of too big to fail, which is totally, I hear you. I will not take the, you know, that you know, take-home essay for them for that tiny little you know, whatever uh, in their, their class that doesn't matter. But you're kidding me that you think I'm not gonna facilitate them acing the LSAT. Like that is way too big for them to fail. And then it's like, and then what about the bar? And then what about like the first, you know, brief that they have to write? And what you know, all of these things, it, it really does compound itself. If your kid can't suffer through studying for the LSAT and getting a score that is not consistent with what they want on the LSAT, how are they gonna succeed as a lawyer? If your kid can't get through, you know, uh, whatever easy quiz that there is in the first week of, of college and you're calling the professor to say, oh no, we didn't get enough sleep the night before, then what are they gonna do when they miss a deadline at work? And so the idea is that there is no such thing as anything that is too big to fail because your child has to experience failure. 
this is, I, we agreed that I was going to put the mean hat on and then I'm going to take it off well, and then Mark's going to take over. I was going to say, actually, <laughs> just to build on that, like, so I, I have kids that are younger than this age. So I have kids ranging from 6 to 14. Um, and definitely, the parents around me, this too big to, this is definitely an upcoming problem. This snow, I love this term, uh, snow plow, snow plowing. Uh, I think that's definitely happening. Like, I know this is not a topic for tonight, but I, I do believe, at least in this community, I've heard enough conversations, Shabbos tables, etc. like not allowing your kids to have any sort of struggle, no problems at all, let's get rid of all issues. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely coming, and I guess we'll, we're gonna end up talking about that again in a few years yeah, from now, so. probably. Um, <laughs> but like, like leagues, for example, like, no one can lose. Like, my kids lost a lot. And I actually like that. I, I say to them, it's good. It's good to lose. You have to feel what it likes to, what, what, you have to know what it feels like to lose. So I think that's kind of like, yeah. I'm starting them off early. <laughs> okay, so, so I'm going to talk a little bit about um, some practical tips. Now, it's practical as much as, at, like, a big talk can be practical because we're talking to a, a large group. So it's a little tricky, the wording. It's not going to be practical to your life specifically necessarily, but I'm, what I'm hoping is through this conversation you could take pieces and apply them and use them for yourself in your own situations. So this is kind of, as you can tell, this is like our theme basically. Like This is a snapshot of what we're trying to figure out. This, uh, you know, this balance, like we're saying, between allowing your kids to make mistakes and develop, good thing, and providing guidance to recognize and address problems, also a good thing but sometimes they don't go together. So we have to figure out when to do which, which kid to do which for, which situation to, you know, it's, it's gotta be fluid and you gotta be moving back and forth. And definitely one thing I wanna say is, one of my favorite things to, to tell people is when you mess up, it's a great opportunity. When you mess up with your kids and you get into a huge fight and it becomes a disaster and you yell and you scream and everybody's yelling at each other. So that's a perfect time at some point after that, to come back and own it, own your part, parent, parents, own the parent part. Start by saying, I was, I shouldn't have yelled. That was way too much. I was upset, but I should not have yelled. I should not have gone, I shouldn't have said what I said. I am sorry, it was wrong. That is a great learning experience, which we'll get to later, because that, that creates a lot of things. It creates a relationship, it teaches them how to be vulnerable, it teaches them how to be honest. That's a, amazing opportunity. So next time you get into a fight, which will probably be very soon. I, in fact, I just got into a fight with my kids before I got here. And I'm going to go home and do it later, tomorrow maybe. Be, hopefully they'll be sleeping. But that, I, I relish those opportunities because I feel like it's a great, it's a great chance to do all these things. Would you mind? Just one, yeah. more, yes. one more thing about balance in general. We, we are constantly talking about balance in, it's, it's, kind of one of the core values, I think, of our religion. It's something that, especially in modern orthodoxy, we talk about a lot. I think that a bigger challenge than balance is both and thinking, is thinking about two things that are seemingly opposite and holding them at the same time. We talk about this all the time in therapy, the idea that we don't have to say black or white. We don't have to say all or nothing. We don't have to say allowing kids to make their mistakes or I give them guidance. Both things are true at the same time, all the time. It's incredibly uncomfortable to try to hold both of those things that seem to be at odds with each other, and yet that is. Yeah, we have clients who do that all the time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So in that in that balance scale, the assumption is is that you won't be balanced. Meaning, as 
a child gets older, we're, I think that's what we're trying to put up there, is that the balance just goes, like we're unbalanced, right? You should provide less guidance and have them make more mistakes as they get older, let them develop their own identity, because if it's too balanced, you're, you're not doing your job. Right. I, I think you could say, yeah, I think I, I think I understand, right, it, it, the, the idea would be if we had like cool technology, to, to would be to make it like move, yeah, right. because I think that's, right, that, I think that's a point, it, it just depends, not not only on on getting older, it just depends on literally the situation right in front of you, or the, the kid in front of you, there's a lot of pieces that go into it, right, so next time, we're going to figure out a way to, yeah. to, to make it, yeah, like click yeah. something so that it goes up, yes, again. But I think that that's a really important point because it isn't, it, it, it does depend on the kid and it does depend on the situation and it depends on which domain of developmental higher, the developmental milestones we're talking about and there, you know, there, there are times to push, there are times to take a step back and um, figuring out where that is, is is kind of the key. Right, so, these, so this is not an inclusive list of everything that you need to do to figure this situation out, but it's four areas that we thought could be useful to focus on. So we wanna, we're gonna talk a little bit about being aware of your child's stressors in their specific lives. Develop communication, which we've a little bit spoken about also. Ignore the warning signs of trouble so that we could also just be aware. And just in terms of wherever you send your kids to college, know what's, what's out there for them. Okay, so there's your answer. I'm not even gonna, that, we could have done that as a, uh, you know, one of those oh, flyers yeah, I have, next time. Not a lot yeah. of animation in the slide, so I apologize. Um, so, okay, so that, now you see the answer. So how do you figure out what stresses your kids out? Can anybody guess? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's the answer. Ask them. So I think about this in two ways. It's like, I mean, this is obviously over oversimplifying it a lot also. Let's say there's two types of kids very, very talkative, want to tell parents everything sort of kid, and then the very to him or herself sort of kid. So the ask them is very easy with the very talkative kid. Just ask them, and then they'll tell you what's going on in their lives, right? This is happening, that's happening. For the other type of kid that's a little more quiet, I still believe that you should ask that kid what is going on, and you should ask it often, not like every second of every day, but it should be in your mind a consistent question, which basically means have conversations with them. It doesn't have to be long, it doesn't have to be in depth, but keep the conversation going, and the idea is to show them you're interested. It's not to pin them down and to figure out what you want to know, it's to really hear from them. That's the idea we're trying to convey here. When you have a conversation with your kid, it's not your agenda that's coming in and you're trying to pull it out of them, it's their agenda that's leaving them and coming into you. So that's the idea. And if you can have that in mind when you talk to your kids, I want to know what's going on in your life, not tell you what's going on in my life, like we were saying in the anxiety that I'm, think, that I'm feeling, but I want to hear what's going on for you. That's going to be a productive conversation, even if the kid doesn't say anything, because they'll remember that you care about them. Um, so right, take, and this, this, is a, this is a good sentence to say. If you want to tell us something, we're always here to listen. Right? So they, they don't have to reply to that. They might just laugh you off or move on or not say anything, but the, the more you say that and the more you show it, which we'll talk a little bit about later, that gets ingrained and that's, that will help later on when a kid really does struggle with something. Okay, so communication. This is obviously gonna be key. Um, so this first line is like a little jarring, but I believe it's true. This is the only tool that you have to influence your, your adult child's behavior. So 
we have to concede the leverage has shifted for the most part. When we were younger, we had leverage. When the kids were younger, we had leverage. Go to sleep here. I mean, not really. My kids don't really listen to me when I say go to sleep, but I guess it feels, it feels like I have leverage. Um, but like I could tell them, like I'm, you know, I'm going to take away this device. Like I could do things to make to make it happen, um, and they, they're like a little bit more willing to hear it and move along with it. Or at least we, we trick ourselves to think that they are. When they get older, you could still probably use leverage, but it's going to go away. It's diminishing returns. As it goes along further, they're just going to get more and more distant, and it's going to be a problem. So we have to acknowledge, I think, that the communication is going to be our new way of helping our kids or impacting them. But when I say communication, that's what I mean. I mean, like, it's feedback. It's both ways. It's more even. So you don't have control like you had before. But this was very cool when I saw this. 72% of students... Um, still take health information from their parents. So what does that mean? They're listening. Even if they don't admit it, even if they don't tell you that they're listening, even if they don't share with you that they're listening, they're listening, apparently. And this is, again, three quarters of every college kid is still hearing their parents. That, that's a really important thing for us to remember. Isn't that selective listening, though? Could be. <laughs> Isn't it could. all selective listening? <laughs> it could be. The point is, we assume they don't hear anything we're saying. Or I will assume that we, they don't hear anything we're saying because they're not responding to us right away or not telling us they hear us. But they hear without telling us that they, that they hear us. That's the idea. So it sounds different now, like I've been saying before. Um, they need to know that you're there if they need you, which is what I'm saying. This idea of delivering that message, that you're there, you're willing to listen, you're willing to hear them. You want to know what's going on. And it's never too late. So even, look, even if you haven't had these sort of conversations, people are like, that's awkward, it's weird. I'm going to tell my kid, like, I'm here for you. Yes, yeah, that, that's what you're going to tell your kid. Why not? Why, why, why wait forever to tell them what you already feel anyway? You, you are here for them. That's, that's, that's why you're their parent. So, you sh so I, I love that line. It's never too late. I really believe that. And Again, that shows you're willing to have these deep, it's so many, there's so many accomplishments, there's so many things you accomplish by doing that. You show them that you're there, and you also show them it's okay, I can, I can tell you how I feel, I don't have to be afraid of that. And that, and that invites them to then feel, to, to react the same way to you. So lots of listening, less talking, right? So that's it, like you just wanna pull out the information from them and hear what they have to say and not respond right away. It could take a few seconds to respond, you could, listen to what they have to say. You could have to ask them for clarification, not challenge. These are different ways that you can kind of hear what's going on in their lives. So part one was, okay, I'm going to tell you that I want you to talk to me and that I'm here for you. So this is kind of what I was hinting at as part two. By, by being vulnerable, by showing that it's, when I said saying sorry, admitting mistakes, taking a break, you show them that you're human. You make mistakes like everybody else. You do, th you do things wrong like everybody else. And by actually, actually demonstrating that to them, you, you create the opening for them to do the same thing to you. So if you want someone to be honest with you, you have to be honest with them. That's like a very basic truth. If you're, if you're not going to come forward with whatever is bothering you, not everything that's bothering you, but things that are bothering you, then why should, why, should they have to why should they speak to you if you're not opening up to them? Now, again, everything with a grain of salt. It's not like you sit there and you turn it into a therapy session with your child. 
But if you want to say something very uh, useful, like when I was in college, I failed. This is not me necessarily. Mm -hmm. I didn't do perfectly. I didn't fail, but okay. I'm gonna record you saying. Okay, fine. So I didn't fail, mom and dad. (laughs) Um, But I okay. But if I said to my kids, look, I. I, I took this class, I worked really hard in this class and I ended up getting a C. And I was really upset. I was really annoyed. And I thought like, what am I gonna be? I'm not gonna become an accountant. What, what am I gonna turn into? If you shared a story like that, like without them asking for it, and, and they saw, wow, this, this, this father and this mother that I really look up to is valuable and makes mistakes, that invites future conversations, like an investment. But it's an investment, you're not, you're not manipulating, you're, you're actually trying to show them it's okay to be this way. It's okay to make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. And so by modeling these sort of things with the introduction of, I want to be here for you and I'm here to try to help you, that creates, that creates a relationship of trust and creates an opportunity for your kid then to actually talk to you when something's up, which is the whole goal of tonight. We want people, we want our kids to tell us so that we can try to help them and do that balance both ways. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, no problem. So, so this is and so this is the third section. So, know the warning signs. So, what I like about the, so these are all the, the most popular, I would say, probably warning signs: changing sleep patterns, eating habits, great changes, changing social life, personality, etc. I think the idea here is there's not like a wrong or right. So, some some kids, let's say for sleeping, some kids are okay sleeping six hours. So if they end up sleeping four hours a night, I don't know if that's anything really to get crazy about, but if that same kid who sleeps six hours a night now sleeps 12 hours, now you have a change. Or the, in the opposite direction, someone is, 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 is a big eater. He eats a lot. Okay, he's a big eater. He has a big appetite. So then if he starts eating much, much less, that's a change. It's good to know and it's important to know what your kid's baseline is. Not, not what like is good or bad objectively, just what is your kid's baseline? And then when you see a big change in their baseline, personality, social life, used to hang, used to hang out with a lot of kids, now hangs out with no one. Used to not really hang out with so many people, now hangs out with a lot of kids. It's not something to go crazy about, it's something to now say, okay, I'm gonna start this conversation. However you do with your kids, whatever it is. You start the conversation, you notice this, I, do, you know, I, I hear that, I notice that, I just wanted to check in with you, how are things going, something along, whatever you do, however you talk to your kids individually, just notice if you, you know, parents are really good at that, they really know their kids well, even though they, we think we don't, we, we do, we know them well, we know, we know what their baselines are, we know how they usually operate, so if you notice a difference, say something, bring it up, bring it up over time, if you get shut down, bring it up at different time, but the idea is to just notice these pieces. And then the last, the last part is, so one of the good things about all this research that has been done and everything and, and all, the, uh, all the studies that have been done is that now colleges, it's probably very different from what it was in the old days, are really responding. And there's huge, huge support networks in colleges. Tons of therapists, psychiatrists, all different types of support networks. It's there. So you should know what, what it is for your own knowledge, and you should know what it is so that you can tell your kid. And it's not, again, it's not to say you have to go see a therapist, but say, this is something that's available, what do you think? And once you can connect them with a therapist, that, that can, I mean, depending on the confidentiality and all that, but they can start kind of help get the support that, 
that your kid needs. So really, it's not all on you. There's other people around to support. But if you know this information and you know what needs to be done or what could be done, then you can help your kid find and connect to those resources, which is an amazing thing. Every year that I was at YU, every single year that I was there, more kids showed up. Every year, both campuses, men and women. Every year the numbers went up. The graph went up every year. And to me, it, was no, it wasn't really a surprise. I, I, and everyone would always ask me, it's like a classic question. Is it, is it, does it mean that mental health is worse nowadays? Or, or is it just more people? I, I don't know the answer. I imagine it's both. People are both more open and things have gotten more difficult. But I think it's a good thing. We're responding. At the end of the day, the world is responding and we're responding to it. And, and wherever you send your kid to college, they're responding to it. Now they're very overworked. It's very busy at these counseling centers, but they're there and they're great professionals and they care. So it's good for you to, for you to know that information and for you to be able to tell it to your kids. Don't force them, don't push them. Just let them know that's there. And by the way, you could tell them, I won't even find out. I, the parent, the parent doesn't find out if the kid's in therapy in college. I know that's like obvious, but. One related tip that I put in here because um, I've seen this happen too many times if your child is in therapy in high school and does not want to be in therapy in college, set a date on your calendar to check in with each other to see whether or not things are going okay, they remain stable, and don't seek services when they need them, seek them before they need them because we are in a true crisis. There are not enough mental health professionals for the kids that need them, and you don't want to be in a situation where your child is in desperate need urgently of seeing someone and they cannot get access to someone. So really try to have an open dialogue about, yes, you are allowed to make mental health care decisions for yourself and also let's agree that we are not going to let this get ahead of us. We're going to kind of work on this together. Yeah, right. Great point. Okay. That's that. Yeah. You had a slide in the beginning about how like the 1950s and 2000s, right? You did high school, career, or do you think in some instances for a lot of our kids, now that you're talking about submerging adulthood, is college at 19 for many people just too early? Like, should there be a resetting of knowing your kid and be like, well, maybe not everyone went to college so quickly, or maybe you need to do some, something else for a couple of years. What, what do you guys think that? You go ahead. I think that's a great question. I, I think that that's a great idea, that, that there are a lot of people who do very well with, I mean, the concept of a year in Israel is a, a, um, something that I think we simultaneously have right in our community and also does not work for everyone. And there's a lot of research on, a lot of research, my father has done a lot of research <laughs> <laughs> on um, he does the, research. The, it's true, and on the sort of um, the unique vulnerabilities and opportunities of that, that time. But I think that the idea of a gap year is, uh, is wonderful. Like I think that that is uh, an opportunity for someone to see what independence feels like while being in an even more protective environment than in many ways than college might be. In some ways, that's too much even, even then. I think that 18, 19 is incredibly young. Um, and I, I don't know that we can use this to say, no, kids need to stay in high school for another two years. But I do think, to, to Martin's point earlier, there are some kids that are ready to get married at 18, and that's actually you know, incredibly healthy. And then there are some that are probably not ready to go to college until they're 25. And we are not gonna change the, the world. We're not gonna change the societal expectations of, of kind of how people
people progress through um, you know educational expectations but you can make different choices for your you know with your kids that's what I was going to say that, that that's kind of like how I like I was saying before how I view all of these nice talks is it gives, gives you something to think about for yourself over time will hopefully changes will happen as they need to happen like even 20 years ago right the, how many people went to Israel, I mean, in between high school and college? I don't know, it was, it was a much smaller number than, than it is now. Like, like we're saying, not everyone needs to go or should go even, but it's, the numbers have gone up probably, may, maybe, I think, because there has been, people have realized they need time between high school and college. So they go and they take a year. And it's not just in the Jewish world. The people outside in the secular world also take time off. They take gap years in college. They take a break from college. So... It's not, the idea is out there, people are aware of it. People have to know what their own family situation is and make the decisions that make the most sense for their kids and for their families. I just wanna note, we are past nine o'clock, so don't, if you can't stay for the rest of the Q&A, we will not be offended if people start walking out, but we also are here to answer questions. So someone needs to walk out now to make everyone <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's a, it's a, a, a slide that I took out that I, I talked to. I talked to mental health professionals about how to um, scaffold independence with the idea being we cannot expect some, we're like, okay, so emotional independence is, uh, is a developmental milestone. I'm not answering your calls anymore. Like we're not gonna do that. Not only because that's cruel and absurd, and, but because you want to maintain a relationship with them, and also because there's people can't kind of progress through developmental milestones at the drop of a hat. You do have to think about it in a scaffolded manner where you do it kind of slowly, and maybe it is an open conversation where you say, listen, I'm thinking about the, what these calls are doing for you. You know, these calls are, you know, keeping us very close. They're providing you with a lot of support, and also I worry that it's making you less independent. Is there something that we can do about this slowly? Can we kind of decrease the calls to once a day? Can we like change some of the calls to text messages? Can we kind of agree that like I'm going to call you on Fridays instead of the other way around or whatever it is? I mean, you know, within reason, you're not necessarily going to sit down with the chart and figure figure this out. But I do think that uh, recognizing that just because we have agreed upon what these developmental milestones are, we don't have to say, okay, now you're uh, you know you're 25, it's time. But I don't think I text is any different than a call like I don't sure. think go, saying okay now we're going to text instead of call is but I also don't I think it's completely out of our control with the fact that everyone owns one of these mm -hmm. like when I went to college I state myself but you know we didn't have these mm -hmm. so it was more of an effort for me to call my parents I had to make sure like I was by a phone I had a little bit of a time difference where I went to college so I had to make sure the time was right and it was an effort so yeah. we probably didn't speak except for once a week and that was like okay oh my god I haven't spoken to my parents and a week I have to call them or they'll be so upset mm -hmm. now it's just too easy so it's almost it's inevitable like I don't even think it could go back again to put the mean hat on you can decline calls like I'm, I'm serious <laughs> and I really do I really do mean this and I say this to parents all the time there there is a certain amount of cruelty to what we're proposing here the kind okay, of and then they're gonna text. 
And right. how long are you going to... And, and you don't like, reply. I'm saying, I'm saying that there is a reality to if you want to help your kid become more independent, there is a certain element of someone's going to feel discomfort, and it's going to probably be both of you. <laughs> um, and, and that might be part of it. Have there been any like demonstrable differences or studies done around like this is very generalized, and we're living in an Orthodox community, right? And are there like tangible differences in these studies. We have Shabbos, we have young kids come back to us more often, the ways that they interact, the pressures that they have from our community that would be different than just kind of like the generalized approaches that you put here for, for how to tackle some of these things. Do you want to do that research? something we should do, yeah. <laughs> no, it has. It, I not that I know of. But you're right. I, as I was putting this together, I was thinking how different this population is than some of the other populations that I speak to. The the developmental milestones are different, um, and the way that we think about how we achieve them is different, and the relationship with family is different. So absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, among the things that you presented categorically, and I think it was presented initially as a joke, is that the rental companies have a right, mm -hmm. right? But that's based on biology, that the CFC <coughs> is not fully developed until age 25. So my question to each of you is, do the rental companies have it right and we have it wrong? Because that's based on biology. So their decision not to rent a car to a 24-year-old is a good decision. They would love to enjoy that revenue, but they're making that decision based on biology and based on data. Yeah. Are we making the wrong decision when we empower our 22 or 23 year old to do things which are arguably based on data and based on biology, the wrong decision? Are we making a mistake? So I, I think this, I'm not trying to skirt it. I just, this is, this is how I deal with these sort of questions. I, I just think it depends. I think you're right. I think generally speaking, well, I don't know what the exact study is behind the rental car people, whatever they did. Um, I trust that they put they a lot crash. of. They, I, 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 no, I trust they put a lot of research. Like you said, they're losing. They're losing revenue. They're losing revenue. Right. So I, I trust that to them, it's saying we're going to look at the big picture, and they're not having you know personal interactions with any of these people. This is worth it for them. That's good to know in general. I don't think that necessarily applies to your son or daughter. It's just going to, you have to decide if, so it's the same, we're making a mistake or we're, I don't know how to answer a question of we are doing X or we are doing Y. That, that's why I, as a therapist, that's how I look at everything. It's, everything is so individual. It's so, it's, it's so specific, which is one of my, that's what I keep saying, one of my, one of my conflicts with these sort of talks is that part. It's like, it's not individual. It can't be because, I respect that. You know what I'm that, that's one of my that's one of my that's one of my difficulties whenever you have one of these talks. So I think I think you're right. I think it may probably in general we should rethink all these things. But I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you know your your son or daughter should be able to rent the car when they're 18 and they'd be fine. I promise you they should. <laughs> <laughs> but but I think I think that's that, that's a great point that you're bringing up and that's kind of like the limitation of, of these sort of things like to work on your individual situation, we need to sit down and talk through and figure it out together. So we try to give general points to give people ideas, but not specific to any situation. Um, I'd love to hear 
like any additional tips on like practical tips for successfully achieving that balance or creating that balance and even like any differences between you know that come up in the data between girls and boys or between you know the sharers and the not sharers on how to like have that appropriate uh, balance of having a good relationship and open communication while still sort of setting those boundaries or like phrases that I mean you gave us a few like phrases that work but getting you know getting a little bit deeper do you maybe you can give um, some, like a scenario is there something you have in mind or a situation <laughs> okay no I think one of the things that um, you know, we all come from different backgrounds and we make different decisions about where our kids should go to college, what <laughs> schools to, uh, they should attend after, um, after high school. And in the modern Orthodox world, there's a very, like, there's a structure. And then a lot of kids will say, I'm going to go to, you know, SUNY Binghamton or Maryland. Then they go to Israel and then they say, okay, forget all that. My rabbi told me I'll be better off and go to YU. So there's a structured you know, put themselves in a more structured environment. And my personal opinion is that structured environment is not necessarily, you know, quote-unquote, a safe zone. But putting all that aside, I think Since in China... not applicable to either of our... Uh, hold on, hold on. <laughs> hold on, folks. So, I think in trying to, to uh, broaden my wife's question and, and give you a tangible scenario here, you have kids that are going off to different types of institutions, and some kids like to explore more, uh, like to explore life more than others. So what type of, uh, what do you suggest in terms of communicating with your children who may be more on the, let's say the broader spectrum, meaning that they're more inquisitive about life. They want to look at things differently. They want to uh, get involved in different groups, whether that means joining a fraternity or having lunch with a friend who is, you know, Egyptian or whatever it may be, you know, someone who has a very open mind about life, how do you manage that balance from your perspective as a parent to say, hey, my kid's doing quote unquote the right thing, to knowing that like this is the life that we've set, we hope that they'll get there at some point, but given that they're in this like, you know, wide open, you know, world that's out there, and to their credit, embracing it, um, but at the same time, as a parent and as a modern Orthodox parent, you're saying, say, whoa, you know, you know, where's this framework, boundaries, everything that they've listened to or have been taught? How do we have some sort of, uh, you know, reassurance for ourselves? But getting back to the kid, what type of dialogue do you, uh, or, or recommendations in terms of communications, would you say one should look and phrases that you should put out there with your kids and making sure that you still maintain an open uh, dialogue with your, your kid, but at the same time, trying to give them whatever guidance, without letting your anxiety take over your life, giving them guidance in terms of where you want to see things go. So, so here's what I would do in that scenario. I'd love to hear what you would say also. This is what I would say. My theory, my way of working with people is I have to fully, I want to understand what, you, what you're doing, why you're doing what you're doing first before I give over any of my thinking or any of my 
whatever, thoughts, reflections. So for your son or daughter, I would dive right in to all of that and ask them all kinds of detailed questions and all kinds of you know, ideas of what, what it is that they're, that they're getting out of this, why, like, to really, really educate me into why you're living this sort of way, you know, meeting with the Egyptian and, you know, doing all those things. Like, explain that to me. Tell me what's in, and I would, I would generally try to learn from it, right? Because I, if I'm opening myself up to your experience, then I lose my whole agenda. My agenda goes away because now I'm just trying to bring in your experience. And then once we've, we've developed that trust and that understanding of why you're going through what you're going through, there's more of an opportunity for me to share my ideas. Because you're asking them, you're coming in to me, you're, it sounds like you're saying, I, I have a, a concern, I have something I, I would like to share with you. And you can't just throw that in there into the conversation without first hearing where they're coming from completely and why they're doing what they're doing. So in order to get your point across, you have to get their point completely first. And, and if you try to do it too early, then they see right through it and you're done. They're going to just... They're not going to listen anymore, or they'll be very polite and they won't take what you say seriously. But if you take a genuine interest into what they're doing and why they're doing what they're doing, then you have an opportunity to share, and then it becomes a real conversation. So when it comes to this, if you if your worry is he's or she is not, you know, focused enough or not involved in whatever they need to be involved in, you're gonna to have to start from where, why they're doing what they're doing. Like, again, the assumption is your children know what's going on and they know they're smart, they know what the world, what they need to do in the world, but they wanna do this first, so why? And really understand, well, why? I, I, you educate me as to why you're doing this, not me educating you as to why you shouldn't do it. Then you have the opportunity to share well, can I share my thoughts on this? What do you think? And then the person would be much more open to doing that because you already listened to them and you already hear what they had to say. Honest with me, does that, does that get to where you're? <laughs> tell me, where, okay, okay. No, here, here we go, here we go. Okay, so tell me more, tell me more. No, I, I think it's a reasonable approach. I, I think, you know, part of it is ensuring that any of these, any of these, uh, uh, modes of communication, this, this dialogue that you're having with your children is not confrontational. I think that's very key. Um, but I hear you listening before talking. I don't think you have any other choice is, is the point. Like, you cannot anymore just say, well, just do this this way. You can say it, but, but then it's, nothing's going to happen because they've thought about it and they say, well, well, Dad, this is what I'm interested in doing. I'm interested in doing this and that and the other thing. That's what they're telling you, basically. And you're saying, no, 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 don't do that, do this. And you're say, no, I don't want to. So you don't, that's the leverage thing that I was saying before. You don't have the leverage to just say to them, do, I mean, look, sometimes you could do that to, to certain, you could try to push it that way, but again, I think that's gonna create separation also. Either way, I think it's a lose-lose. I think the only way to go in is to try to, get them to educate you, and then through that, you can give them a little bit of your perspective as well. And I think acknowledging that you can't, you can't change their behavior, um, but you want to preserve the relationship. And if you, if you think about what you want to prioritize, do you want to prioritize getting your point across, or do you want to preserve the relationship, then going into any conversation with that in mind, I think makes, makes a huge difference. We, I don't even know if we have time for one more question. 
or Thank you both so much for, for this. Thank you.